This is an Ion Annapolis bonus podcast. Well, this is a first for me because I don't think I've ever recorded a podcast in the midst of a thunderstorm that doesn't seem to want to quit. So if anybody hears any booms, that's what that is here. But today joining us on the phone is Rachel Schulten, who is the president of the Maryland International Education Consortium, which is an organization that I didn't even know existed, but it really sort of piqued my curiosity. And you are also the director of international admissions at Loyola, right? Yes, correct. Well, I'll tell you, that makes sense with a name like the Maryland International Education Consortium and the Director of International Admissions at Loyola. But we wanted Yes, absolutely. Well, we wanted to talk and learn a little bit about what um and do you go by the acronym? I mean, everybody in Maryland goes by acronyms. Do you go by MDIEC? Well, some of us say MIAC, some of us say MIAC, sometimes we say MIEC, so it's kind of like choose your poison. <laughs> <laughs> We, lo- we love acronyms anywhere here out- outside of D.C. anyhow, but the website is mdiec.org. And yes. on the website, the mission says that the mission of the Maryland International Education Commission is to serve as the premier advocacy and resource center for the branding of internationalization of MIEC members, public and private higher education institutions in the state of Maryland. Can you whittle that yes. down for me a little bit? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So it is pretty broad. Um, So we are what's called a study state consortium. And there are over 30 of these now in the US. And it's essentially, um, they're organizations that are kind of supported by the US commercial service, because actually international education is considered to be a services export. So even though the students are coming here for their studies, because they're coming on non-resident, non-immigrant visas, it's seen as them taking that education back home with them. Um, so it is a services export, and that's why U.S. Commercial Services is involved. And the idea is basically for these, uh, you know, multiple institutions within a given state to sort of collaborate, share resources, share information, and promote the state as a great institution for international students to come and study. And each of these has kind of a different form. So some of them, um, the local sort of equivalent of MHEC would be involved. In some cases, it's not. Some of them focus really exclusively on kind of that incoming, bringing international students here. Others have a wider mission. So, for example, um, our group, the Maryland International Education Consortium, we do collaborate on international recruitment. Um, but we also work together on professional development for our members. So we recently had um, an online event where we were talking about basically refugees and issues related to higher education. You know, what are the challenges? What are the barriers? What are the opportunities? How can we come together as a higher education community and advocate for these students? Um, So we kind of collaborated with local refugee agencies and the President's Alliance on Higher Education. So we kind of talked through some of these issues and supported each other in that work. Um, and then also trying to um, sort of help out uh, in terms of outgoing students. So we also do some work with, for example, Maryland sister states um, to set up partnerships with foreign universities so that our members can kind of find good partners abroad and start up some exchanges, sometimes with students, sometimes with um, scholars as well, so faculty members. So primarily you're dealing with the, I'm say the, I mean, international education is sort of a bi-directional type of a pipeline here. You've got people coming in and going out. I mean, you're primarily dealing with folks bringing them into Maryland. 
Yeah, but we do, within our membership, we have folks that do TESOL, so teaching English to speakers of other language. We have um, people that work in study abroad specifically. We have people that do international recruitment. We also have folks that are senior international officers, so people at the associate vice president or um, vice president level who are kind of in charge of internationalization generally at their universities as well as folks that work at universities and colleges in immigration advising. So they're the ones working with current international students and scholars, really helping them understand what is allowed in the visa status, helping them stay on track with all of that. Okay, and this is not a, I mean, we're talking about coming to Maryland for a higher education or perhaps sending somebody from Maryland someplace else for a higher education. We're not talking about semester abroads here, are we? Well, for the outgoing, we are primarily talking about like a semester or a year, um, which would be an exchange with an international university. But for the incoming, um, you know, it can involve exchanges, certainly, but we're primarily talking about full-time degree-seeking students. Well, you know, it's funny. It was very recently in my many, many moons of being alive, it seems, that I realized how immigration works. And I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but it was probably about five years ago. I was, uh, they, on the 4th of July, they do a, a naturalization ceremony at the Peca house here in Annapolis. They were telling the stories about these immigrants that are now becoming U.S. citizens and how they came in. Again, they mentioned for school and they went and they got their undergraduate and they got their master's and they got their PhD and he's some kind of a big wig doctor at Hopkins now. And, you know, the whole nine yards. And I'm like, I had no clue that I guess that we retained citizens like, well, they weren't citizens for a while, but, you know, retain people here that come in here, which I imagine is probably huge. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. It really depends on the level of study and it depends on um, the area of study. So um, there was actually a recent study from um, University of California, Davis. Um, it was reported on in the in the Washington Post as well, that um, only about 13% of international students who study at the bachelor level end up staying. About 23% of folks who study at the master's level end up staying. But if you look at, if you look at like STEM fields and more advanced degrees, many of these folks are staying. Um, they're coming with the intent to stay because they want to be here. They know that this is where jobs are in these fields. In some cases, you know, many more job opportunities than in their home countries. But one of the biggest challenges is that the F-1 student visa does not allow for dual intent. So what that means is because it's defined as a temporary non-immigrant visa, if it comes up in your visa interview that you're like, yeah, I might like to stay and work in the U.S., that will disqualify you from getting the visa. Um, so it's, it's something that's a big challenge because um, other countries that receive a lot of international students they have much friendlier policies, much clearer kind of paths to immigration. So even though our our country does benefit greatly from, you know, bringing in new ideas, people from other places that can really contribute, we've made it a little bit difficult for them to do that. We don't make it very easy. Right? <laughs> it's, it's definitely a process. Where are most of our international students coming from? I mean, and, and I'm, I imagine with your consortium that you're dealing, I mean, obviously you are focused on Maryland. But you probably have colleagues that are focused on, you know, Colorado and New York and California and everything else. But where are most of the international students coming from? Sure. Well, the numbers in Maryland are pretty reflective of the general national numbers as well. So nationally, the top two senders to the U.S., about 50 percent of all international students are coming from China and India. 
Um, and there's a lot of push factors there, right? These are massive, massive countries, over a billion people each. So these countries, they just don't have the higher ed capacity to educate all of the students who are qualified and who want to get a degree um, in higher education. And so a lot of those students look abroad if they want to continue their studies. Both countries are definitely working hard to build capacity. They want to keep more students at home. They're both also very interested in attracting international students themselves. Um, but for right now, they just don't have the capacity to educate all of the qualified students in their country. And so there's big push factors sending those students um, to places like the U.S. Um, and then our, our third um, largest population is South Korea. Um, there is a very large Korean population here in Maryland. So Ellicott City area, we have Maryland Korean Way, where there's all these different Korean-owned businesses. And students know they can get local foods and products that they recognize from home. So I think that's a draw for them as well. We've got lots of H-marts and motes where they can shop and, and find the things that they like from back home. That's pretty cool. New question. You said China and India are the top two that are here in Maryland. And it's indicative sort of of a national trend, if you will. But China right now, I mean, is that potentially as the potential to jive into a political issue for you? I mean, education is so apolitical. It should be apolitical. Is this something that that you're concerned about that with you know tensions that may be rising up with China being able to harm the amount of students that may be coming in? Yeah, I mean, that's always a concern um, because, you know, like you said, we wish that education was apolitical, but it really isn't. It really does get caught up in, in politics a lot of the time. And so, well, I, you know, I don't think there's any issue with like a university, an individual university saying we don't want students from a certain place. Um, but sometimes there are kind of political um, issues that can cause perceptions of, you know, uh, an unwelcome situation. And so we don't want to give that uh, impression to students from anywhere, right? We want to welcome everyone. But there can be issues if the um, perceptions that we're not welcoming to students from particular places, or that they're being targeted in some way. So I mean, for example, we know that during the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a huge rise in hate crimes against people of the Asian phenotype, right? Just Walking down the street, a lot of people right. encountered issues, whether or not they were actually Chinese or of Chinese descent. But there was this, you know, negative sentiment and it was a scary time. And that kind of thing does make the news. So people do hear about that and they wonder, you know, if I come here, am I going to be safe or is some part of my identity going to mean I'm not safe here? Or there's other concerns that I need to have here that I don't have back in my home country. So that can certainly be an issue. You know, as we look at these numbers of students, how many international students do we have matriculating here in the state? Do you know that number off the top of your head? So um, for 2022, um, there were just under 20,000 international students here in Maryland, um, 19,651. So IIE, the Institute for International Education, they release a big study every year called the Open Doors Report. You can find a lot of great data on um, national level as well as state level um, information about both incoming and outgoing um, students from the U.S. and to the U.S. The international students, and I'll, I'll show my ignorance here, I'm assuming there is little to no aid, um, financial aid for these these folks that we know of here. Is that is that accurate? So, yeah, so they're not eligible to complete the FAFSA, so they can't apply for U.S. federal aid or for U.S. loans. And then even in terms of private loans, um, typically they would need a U.S. co-signer, which, of course, if you don't have U.S. family members, that's probably not going to happen. 
So for the undergraduate level, about um, 80% of students, their primary source of funding is family funding. And that doesn't mean that all international students are fabulously wealthy, right? If we think about China again, for many years, they had the one-child policy, which means um, four grandparents and two parents, so six adults, that one child was the only person who was kind of the future of all of those adults that was their legacy. So that could mean six adults with all of their savings and everything that they've been working towards in their lives going towards that one student. So again, not necessarily meaning that they're from a very wealthy family and it's very easy for them to fund the study. Sometimes it means a lot of people pitching in to really make that a possibility for the student. I, I, nev- I never thought about that. But again, without the aid that most U.S. citizens or most U.S. students will get when they go to you know pretty much any school in the country, uh, that's got to be a huge influx, I mean, to the economy and everything else. I mean, if somebody's paying... You know, I, I look at, you know, the tuition at Hopkins or uh, certainly, I mean, there's a difference between a Towson and a Hopkins, but because of private, private and public, but it's got to be a huge impact on, um, you know, the economy that they're contributing to to our economy here. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, and there's another great uh, data source here where you can look nationally, you can look at the state level, even congressional district. This is the NASA International Student Economic Value Tool. And the data from this tells us that um, for, I believe it was the 2022 year also, international students contributed over $773 million to the state of Maryland and supported over 8,500 jobs. So that's pretty amazing. It is definitely a huge impact. And this report actually goes into um, individual institutions within the state as well. You can kind of look up and see your local school, um, you know, how many students are there and what they're really contributing. So it brings a lot to universities, both in terms of cultural elements, right, bringing new perspectives and bringing their backgrounds and knowledge, um, contributing that to the classroom. Um, But then also the financial impact at the university, within their city, and then within the state that they're studying in that as well. I, I just quick did some math on my calculator here. I mean, you said that that's about $40,000 a year per student that's just flowing flowing into Maryland. And you said 8,500 jobs were supported. Now, what is a supported job? Does that mean there's we've given jobs to folks like you to support the international community? Or does that mean that these guys are working as they're here? Um, so, no, it's talking about job supported um, because of that economic, economic impact. So, in some cases, people like me who work specifically with international students, but also looking more broadly, um, and they do explain their kind of formulas that they use, but looking more broadly because the students are not just students, right? They're not just paying tuition. They're also living here. Sometimes that means off-campus housing. Think about graduate students. They might be coming with spouses and children already, so contributing um, in that way. And then some do work. Um, International students can work part-time on campus in jobs that are on campus while they're still studying. But also, um, you know, they're purchasing insurance. They are buying groceries. You know, they're buying clothes. They're doing tourist activities. Their families are coming and visiting and staying in hotels. So um, they're kind of taking all of these things into account and looking at what does the presence of these international students really mean for the local economy. Wow, that's huge. And it doesn't even bring into uh, effect the bragging rights that the schools get. Um, you know, for, yes, for sure. Where... Actually, actually um, there are several rankings that do university rankings that include the number of international students and scholars as a factor, because that is something that is very appealing. You know, you want to have a global campus. We live in a global society. 
we do. And, and I have to think that Maryland is ideally, um, if not the most ideal location for an international student. I mean, if we look at how the world works between New York and D.C., um, that's, you know, that's pretty much it. I mean, we're depending on where you are. I mean, we're minutes away from D.C. We've got Baltimore. You've got Philadelphia. You've got Northern Virginia, which has, a, you know, a pretty robust tech segment there. Medicine, certainly here in, you know, in Maryland with Hopkins, you know, the pretty much the only thing we don't have is like entertainment and, um, you know, out, out in, out in LA. And you would think that Maryland would be just a very attractive location for convenience for everything else. I mean, you know, just even look at our transportation for folks that want to go back home. We're, you know, we've got so many international airports within a stone's throw from us. Yes, absolutely. I think Maryland is kind of an ideal place because, well, one of our nicknames is Little America, right? I mean, we've got a little bit of everything. The most recent census found that Maryland is now the most diverse state on the East Coast. So more than Florida, more than New Jersey, New York. That's really amazing. Um, and it's not just sort of the, the current state of things, right? We're also actively receiving um, new refugee resettlement. So this is really an ongoing thing. We have this long history of being a really diverse and really welcoming state um, and having all of these different industries, like you mentioned, just right here, so close to Washington, D.C., easy access to international airports, great transportation in the Northeast Corridor. You know, we sometimes take students up to New York City for the weekend, you know, things like that that you can't do if you're kind of in the Midwest or somewhere further out. That's true. It's not too not too easy from the University of Kansas, so it's yeah. <laughs> it might be from the University of Maryland. So, and you mentioned that twenty two percent of the master's students stay, thirteen percent of the bachelor's students would stay. Uh, what do they? I mean, when the ones that are staying here, and, and obviously, I get that you know they want to go back home or they want to go someplace else to further their careers or whatever it may be, as pretty much everybody would want to do. What are the students that are staying here doing? What types of industries do they get into? Is it all primarily like STEM in the tech world or? Yeah, it's frequently, um, it's frequently STEM. Um, so uh, the, I think the most number of degrees awarded to international students nationally is in kind of the math and computer science category. And we know that that's mostly not theoretical math, it's applied um, like computer science. Um, engineering and business are also really big um, in terms of the number of degrees awarded to international students. So um, a lot of times the ones staying are folks that are able to get work visas for, um, for STEM careers. Okay, okay. And, and I, I did, I was reading an article, one of the ones that you had sent me to is about these, uh, the unicorn companies, which are privately held companies in the United States that are valued at a billion dollars or more. Um, and full disclosure, I'm not one of them, uh, but that's, <laughs> you know, um, but you know, and these are the, some of the companies that are being founded by students that have come through the United States that have, that are just gigantic companies. I mean, I know that um, the one that the article that you sent me is that John Collison uh, founded Stripe, which I know is a, uh, uh, a credit card swiping company, you know, company. Yeah, yeah. Things that some of us use every day, you know, and don't even think about who came up with this idea, you know. So, yeah, it is really shocking statistic, really amazing. Um, a quarter, 25% of these unicorns, uh, billion-dollar startups, have a founder that came to the U.S. first as an international student. So, I mean, that's a pretty direct pipeline there. Uh, 25% is very impressive. I certainly, like you, have not founded a billion-dollar startup company. So it just kind of goes back to that idea of it's not just that these students are kind of 
contributing tuition dollars to their university that they're attending, but it's the ideas that they're bringing, right? The new ways of approaching problems and solving them. What are they kind of bringing to the U.S.? And it's it's really amazing when you stop and think about it. You had mentioned that the you know China and India don't have the infrastructure in place to provide higher education to all of the folks in in their country. What what is there? And and this is my complete ignorance showing through here, but what is their education system, their secondary education system compared to the United States? I mean, you know, you've heard these stories about, okay, yeah, well, he couldn't get into med school here. So he went to some foreign med school and and got a, a fake degree or something like that. I mean, you've always heard stuff like that, but I mean, are the higher education programs in China and India, are they really good? Are they, or is the United States that much better that this is the place to be? Well, it, it does kind of depend on what you want to study. But I will say there are absolutely fantastic world-class universities in both China and India. It really comes down to that capacity piece. They just can't take all of the students who are qualified, who are ready for that level of study. They don't have enough seats. They don't have enough professors. Um, they don't have enough universities, even at the university level. In terms of the secondary level, you know, the both systems are very exam-based. So in India, they kind of follow a system that was sort of set up based on the British system. They do two years of lower secondary, take an exam, um, standardized exam, and then two years of upper secondary, and they take another exam after that. Then they would need to take um, exams to get into university as well. And then in China, they kind of extend junior high a little bit, and then um, they just do three years of uh, upper secondary school. Similarly, they take a very intensive exam called the Gaokao and that is their application to university in China. Um, so it's not a traditional application process in the U.S. where they would be sending essays and letters of recommendation and all, all kinds of things like that. Um, it's very quantitative. It's very much based on standardized exams. That's how you can get in. So it also kind of disqualifies some students who maybe are good students and can do the coursework, they understand it, but maybe they have some anxiety around testing or maybe, you know, they're just not that inclined to do well on tests. There are some really smart people that just are not great test takers. And in the U.S. system, that's not a big problem. But in these exam-based systems, it's a big problem for students that, you know, they may be smart, they may be prepared, but they might just have trouble with that testing piece. And when that's the only way to access higher education in your country, that can also be kind of a push factor. Okay, let me look at a place that's going to take a little bit more of a holistic approach and look at my internal grades and, you know, hear about where I'm coming from in my essay, read my letters of recommendation and really see that I am prepared. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not thankful for that because my youngest daughter is a horrible tester. I mean, I, I can't remember how many AP classes I spent money for for her to roll in there with and get a two on the exam, even though she gets an A in the class. And it was just like, yes, are, you, I know. <laughs> are you kidding me? And, you know, she did go. She went. She ended up going to American in D.C., but she it was a test optional school and she opted out of sending the tests. And yeah, um, exactly. Know. And that's. The U.S. has been moving more and more away from um, requiring those types of exams. So a lot of schools, after the pandemic, decided to stay test optional, let students choose. Some really big systems like the UC system, University of California, they decided we're going fully test blind. If you send an SAT or ACT, we're not going to look at it. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of faith in um you know, and some some of the standardized testing, but it's, uh, you know, definitely thankful for that. And then because so many people learn different ways, and I mean, it's not something unique to the United States, as you said, let's find out who this person is, how they learn, and 
give them the tools to do it as best as they possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. I think more flexibility is better and really trying to kind of meet students where they're at and understand, you know, not doing well in a test doesn't necessarily mean that you're not prepared for college. Well, I think that Maryland is sort of leading the pack in any number of ways and that, I mean, even on the high school level and stuff like that, they're turning around and saying, okay, well, are you, you know, what, what track are we on? Are we going into college? Do we want to go immediately into a job? Do we want to go into the military? Do you know, what, where is your head? And Lord knows we need plumbers and we need tin knockers doing the air conditioners and everything else. We do need scholars. We do need businessmen. We do need it, you know, and women and everything else. And I think that Maryland is really sort of taken the lead in some instances like that. You've got MHEC, which is just a wonderful resource for anybody that does want to go to secondary education. Uh, there's, you know, gobs. And I, I talked to the former secretary who, you know, he, I jokingly said, okay, so where's the secret drawer with this $120 million a year that you keep wanting to give away? And, uh, you know, p- most people that don't, aren't aware of it are like, wow, you mean there's this much money that is available to us to help us with this. We've maybe dropped out. We want to go back or everything else like that. And I know that Governor Moore has made it very clear that education is a primary focus of his administration, uh, both in the primary education, for lack of a better word, and the secondary education. And I think that one phrase that he used, he said that Maryland wants to be known for the eds, feds, and meds. I may have gotten them better, but it was, you know, for a place to provide education workforce for the federal government, as well as doctors with, you know, certainly some of the institutions that we have here, it just seems to fall right into place with what you're looking to do. I would think this administration is probably a very copacetic one for you. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited. And we were able to collaborate recently with both MHAC and with the Maryland Secretary of State Office. Um, And we put on kind of a big program in Washington, D.C., um, sort of trying to have something for everyone. I mentioned within our membership of our um, Maryland International Education Consortium, we've got people interested in, you know, finding international partner universities for exchanges. We've got people interested in bringing in international students people interested in exploring different kind of sponsorship programs from foreign governments. So um, during a big international education conference, we were able to have um, around a 200-person reception. We had people from 11 different embassies, as well as the EU delegation to D.C. and the Hong Kong Economic and Trade Office. We had folks from um, 15 different international universities around the world, U.S. government reps, both from State Department um, and from commercial service from multiple different countries. So it was just very, very successful. It was a really great event to be able to bring um, bring a lot of people together who may not have been in contact otherwise um, and who are right in our backyard there in D.C. And we were able to work and get a lot of support um, from both MHAC and from the Maryland Secretary of State Office on that program. And I will say that, you know, that was you guys are very smart because of, again, the location of Maryland. We were right there in D.C. to be able to bring that all together. Absolutely. Well, I looked, you mentioned you talked about your members and uh, MDIEC.org is the website that you can learn more. But you've got 15 member institutions and there's like 55 colleges and universities in Maryland. What's what's holding the other uh, 40 back? Well, it is a dues-paying organization, so in order to become a member, you need to pay dues. Um, and then we also hope that each um, institution will have kind of an act, someone who's actively participating. For example, we have a variety of subcommittees. Um, you know, you got to put in a little bit of time and a little bit of effort to make those types of programs that I mentioned happen. So some people just don't have the time. Um, not all colleges and universities have anyone designated to work specifically with international 
students or on international endeavors. So sometimes there's just not kind of somebody doing that work who would say like, hey, we should really join this or we should sign up for that. Some may not have the budget, particularly, you know, during COVID, it was a difficult time for universities. There were a lot of layoffs, there were a lot of budget cuts. And so I think some schools are really still trying to recover from that. Um, so there are some schools that were members in the past and are not anymore. But we also have new members um, joining each year. So this is really kind of an organization for um, institutions that are kind of ready to commit the, the time and the financial resources to work together with these other members and really promote the state of Maryland as a great place for international study, work together on professional development um, for our international educators here in Maryland, and really do some kind of state-level advocacy as well um, around international education. And you do have a really good mix. I mean, I'm looking at the at some of the members. I mean, you've got Baltimore City Community College, you've got Goucher, you've got Loyola, certainly where you are. You've got University of Maryland at College Park, you've got University of Maryland, Baltimore County, Washington College is private, Notre Dame of Maryland, Towson's in there, Morgan State. Um, so you've got some, uh, you know, historically black colleges and universities there. You've got some public universities, you've got some smaller, larger and everything else. You even got one called Capital Tech University, which I didn't even ever heard of, um, which is in there. I was like, yeah. I, I was like, yeah. <laughs> it was like I was, I did a wiki. I said, what the heck is this? And I'm like, oh man, it's been around for a while. I had never heard of it. So it's, um, you know, and obviously yeah, that's a STEM it's a focused. Really, sure. Yeah. It's a great cross-section of kind of everything that Maryland has to offer in terms of higher education, like you mentioned, public, private, community colleges, religious institutions. We've got our flagship. We've got HBCUs, small liberal arts. So it's a really great mix. Well, if anybody is listening that is with a school, check out mdeic.org and find out if this is something for you because uh, the value of bringing international students into Maryland is incalculable. I mean, some, you know, Open Doors has, you know, says it's $773,456,514. Um, but it goes way beyond that um, as they become, as, you know, international students that come here, they become citizens that work, they become part of our communities and our neighborhoods and, everything else. And it's just such value in bringing that diversity and, you know, and, and you can call it diversity however you want to call it. But I mean, it, you know, the world is much better when you've got a whole bunch of different people that can work together. That, that is yeah, there. absolutely. What else do we need to know about the Maryland International Education Consortium? Well, like you said, you know, if it's a if there's a college university out there listening, we'd love to hear from you if you have questions about joining or what types of activities we do. We do quite a broad range of activities. Um, we're always trying to collaborate with state level organizations, with NGOs, and with other universities. So last year, um, let's see. Last year, we worked with the Maryland Sister States Program, and we had two kind of virtual webinars and then actually hosted a delegation from the Haute de France Sister State in France, Northern France. And that was wonderful. So that was really for the purposes of um, trying to find within our membership and within the folks interested over there, the university partners, can there be a new partnerships established? And what does that look like? What is each individual institution looking for? So we do things like that, trying to sort of help out our members make those connections which is also, you know, actively promoting Maryland generally, right? A win for one of us is a win for all of us. We've hosted um, Education USA Advisors. Uh, Education USA is a branch of the U.S. State Department, and they have offices all over the world that help advise international students who want to come to the U.S. and study. How do they go about this, right? We have a very complicated process compared to a lot of other uh, countries. 
And then on top of the application process, they need to go through the visa process, right? So um, they have those offices around the world to support students. We've been able to host them for events and for campus visits. People from Yemen, Ukraine, India, Tunisia, Panama, Bangladesh, Jordan, the Philippines. Um, this was all just in the past year. So pretty amazing connections that way as well and a great way to kind of highlight your campus to somebody that is living abroad and can directly tell students in those places like, hey, I've been to this campus. I've met the international folks there. They're wonderful. They're welcoming. This is a great option for you. Um, we also kind of joined forces with the Maryland Community College International Education Consortium, and we co-hosted a conference on the Eastern Shore called Global Learning Locally. Um, that was really kind of looking at best practices that kind of came out of the pandemic and how do we move from this idea of sort of traditional study abroad programs where it's always traveling involved, right, to another country's visas, there and back. And how can we kind of promote global learning locally, right? We all had to figure out a way to do that when we were in the pandemic and borders were closed. So um, we do things like that as well, collaborating with other um, organizations similar to our own. And then we also had a really successful virtual symposium for TESOL, um, teaching uh, English to speakers of other languages. And we're particularly proud of that one because all Maryland institutions that offer a TESOL program were actually represented um, at that symposium. So that was very exciting, a great way to share kind of research and best practices. So that was a really interesting one as well. This has been fascinating for me because it's just a, you've peeled back the onion of a whole different aspect of higher education in Maryland and actually in the United States. And briefly, you mentioned at the beginning about the different refugees that are coming in. And we've got, you know, the Afghan refugees and everything else and Ukrainian refugees. We've got to figure out, you know, these these folks are, you know, potentially here forever. We've got to figure out how to, you know, make sure that they are welcomed, but also, you know, to allow them to thrive and, and to prosper as as we are. Yeah, yeah. It's just another, it's another aspect of what you guys are trying to do at the Maryland International Education Consortium. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, you know, those types of students would not be considered international, even though they have global backgrounds, because like you said, you know, these are folks that are here to stay, you know, um, this is not something temporary, right? They are resettling, they're, they're here to stay, and they are going to need to pursue whatever opportunities they're looking for here in Maryland, right? This is where they're settling. So that means education, that means jobs, that means housing. So what are the ways that we can kind of collaborate to support them in those endeavors? Other state level uh, governments have said, you know what, we're going to, we're not going to wait until the refugees change status and get citizenship or a different status. We are going to just give them in-state tuition. Like if they're eligible for admission to a state institution, they can just get in-state. And that's a way to kind of try and make it a little bit more accessible. Yeah. And, you know, individual institutions can look at their own policies and see, you know, where can we be flexible, right? Maybe somebody didn't grab their official high school documents when they were fleeing the country. So can we get by with a copy? You know, is there a way that we can make an exception? So trying to be flexible and understanding these are not traditional students coming out of a local public high school where it's very easy to call up a counselor and say, hey, can you email me over a transcript or send it through the common application? You know, they have um, extenuating circumstances, certainly. Without a doubt. Rachel Shulton, I appreciate your time this afternoon. Again, mdiec.org is the website you can learn more. Another one you can look at is studymaryland.org, which is a little 
subsite of your subsite <laughs> of, of the site. Yes, absolutely. So we call Study Maryland the recruitment branch of um, MIEC. So that's kind of the side that works on the uh, incoming uh, international student recruitment. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for you know, educating me here as well, as, as you do by your career. I mean, you're working in higher education at Loyola. So, uh, Rachel Sultan, thank you so much for your time today. And, you know, congratulations on everything that you guys have done with MIEC. I mean, I think it's uh, wonderful. And I, I love the way that we embrace what's coming into us and, uh, you know, helping everybody succeed and the whole world will get along a little bit better. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your kind words. And thank you for having me on the show, John. This has been a bonus podcast from Ion Annapolis. Please visit us at IonAnnapolis.net. Follow us on Facebook at All Annapolis and on Twitter at IonAnnapolis. And if you haven't subscribed to the Daily News Brief podcast, go for it. And all of your local news will be delivered to your phone, tablet, or smart device by 6 a.m. every Monday through Friday.